This is Talking Hardcore, the podcast for people who love hardcore history. You study history because it allows us to understand the present and prepare for the future. I'm not trolling. And I love it's, it. I'm, I'm just pointing out where they're wrong. The Talking Hardcore podcast is presented by Ace Industrial Solutions. Are you in need of skilled trade professionals for your next project? Look no further. Hello, everybody. Today we have a special episode. We got a chance to interview Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. If you guys are regular listeners of our show, you know that we are huge fans. Not only did Dan agree to talk to us, he agreed to play Talking Hardcore History Trivia, Judgment at Nineveh. If you haven't heard that episode, in the description is a link to the old episodes on Dan's website. Check it out. Come back and see if you can beat Dan at trivia. You can also find out information about the live events that Dan Carlin has coming up in the cities of Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, Portland, and New York. If I were you guys and I lived anywhere near one of those cities, I would be going to those shows. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as we did. Great, because it feels like we've known you forever. Yeah. Like, that's the weird thing about this, is we are just now meeting you, but it feels like we've known each other forever. Isn't that funny how audio does that, though? It's a very special quality where you're really talking right into the person's ear, and you develop this personal relationship. And you know, the funny thing about in radio, I used to meet the audience sometimes, and they would say, gosh, you know, you're not how I pictured you, because everybody has their (laughs) own image in their head about what you're like, and they formulate a a sort of an avatar, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before the internet, and they could look up pictures of you, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's also, think about it, you're in my ear, but in my truck, in the backyard when I'm building projects, in the basement like it it's not just like i only hear you in the car on the radio now like i, think I hear that's my your kid's voice. nightmare actually just that you mentioned <laughs> it <laughs> i can see that i can see yeah. that it's funny dan during the height of covid i was i remodeled my garage and uh george's like oh you should check out the old episodes and i was like oh okay i mean i really like blueprint blueprint for armageddon and then i went through and less listened to uh Ghosts of the Oz front, and I, I basically just went through the the whole playlist, uh, probably, uh, I don't know, probably eight times by now. Yeah, exactly. So okay, well that's crazy, you guys. So thank you for everything. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, no, again, thank you. I mean, the amount of work you put into that stuff, it it must be exhausting. Like we do a podcast that has no script, and we just talk for fun, and so the amount of work it takes is is very minimal. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the exact opposite of what you do. Well, I have a friend who's a history podcaster, and he he always tries to give me tips for putting out more content more quickly. And he said to me not that long ago, why do you have to read so many books? Just read a couple, and that should be enough. And I had to say, you know, that's just not how I do it. And I feel like I gain mm-hmm. fun little side points and, and, and perspectives and stuff the more I read. So I can't work that way. I mean, we all have our little work right. methods, don't we? Well, sure. I do have a question for you. Wait a minute. Are we starting the podcast? Uh, well, let me let me ask this one first. I, okay, gotcha. Um, how do you when you come across conflicting information? How do you determine what is conflicting and what you know what's factual and what's just like uh, personal opinion? Well, this is I mean this is this is key to how the show developed. So I mean one of the things you're doing today is listening to a really old show. Um, where, you know, I always tell everybody, if you have a favorite TV series that lasted like 10 years or something, you'll notice if you watch, I don't know, 
the first 10 episodes or something. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, what stays, what doesn't. It's beginning to crystallize like or harden like concrete into what it's going to be. And a lot of that, those kind of questions you just brought up are exactly what we were trying to figure out. The difference between the show we thought we were going to do before we started it and the show as it was evolving into. And one of the things was I, I was never going to give factual information to begin with. So, um, and maybe this is something you might want to record. I don't know. But, we're recording but the whole right now. So yeah, okay, we can perfect. use this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole idea was I was just going to have those kind of discussions that were the things history majors talked about and just assume we all knew the story already. So we would just talk about the weird little aspects of it. And then mm -hmm. based on listener feedback, I was getting emails that said, Hey, we, I like those little side things you do, but I don't know the story. I don't have the context. So can you tell more of the story so that I can appreciate the weird little twist that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. But that's what opened up the door to, okay, well, what do I do with the fact I'm not a historian and you know, most people don't understand that history is not like math. There are differing opinions and different points of view, and it changes over time as it gets revised, right? So a history from 50 years ago might not be completely factual anymore compared to the new ones coming out. So how does one deal with that? And that's when we started to get into this idea of, well, I'm just going to share those. And we're going to, you know, I had a history professor tell me recently, it was a great compliment, that we've gotten people interested in historiography, the process of making history and writing about history, because it's traditionally right. considered a very boring subject uh, for graduate students. But it's not boring when you realize that there, you know, I mean, if you think about today, how if you watch Fox News or if you watch MSNBC, you're getting two very different spins on the current reality. Well, if mm -hmm. you realize that history's always been that way, and if only one of those two channels made it into the history books, how different your view of the past might be. So to answer your question, when, when you say, well, what do you do about things that might differ or one might be wrong or you don't know which one's wrong or right? Uh, that is why I read so many books, because you try to get sort of the sense of where the majority opinion is. And then you can say that there is a minority opinion that believes this. And I try not to take an opinion on it, but I will say something like, well, I read 30 books and 28 said this and two said that and try to give a sense of what the ratio is. But I'm not an expert and I don't even pretend to be. As you guys know, I mentioned over and over, I'm not a historian. <laughs> uh, and if you want to know more about these things, we always put the books up on the website so people can read what I'm reading and get their own sense of it. Exactly. Well, that's that's one of the things that makes it why you're so trusted as a voice on subjects as well, because we know that you are reading all the source material, citing your sources, and then saying, and here, this is one opinion, and there's another opinion, and not being and not giving a biased opinion, right? Or, or not well, he might even say the one I believe, but yeah, he also sure. says there's a difference of opinion here, yeah. but the. So the difference here, like I majored in history as well in college, and I've learned more from you than I did getting my degree. And it's not particularly close. And it's because... <laughs> That's terrible, man. <laughs> oh, no, but Dan, it's 100% true. It's, it, so I took a non-teaching history, a non-teaching history um, major, okay? And because I loved history and I knew I was going to go to graduate school anyway. So that's what I did. And most of my professors were very boring. So so I took a class that was history near east to Alexandria. I mean, Dan, you know that subject. It should be fascinating. 
This yeah. guy just showed pictures of his dig sites. And that was the whole hmm. class. You know, wow. at 8.30 in the morning on a Friday. Like, I'm not, I'm and 19 years old. Like, to me, that was boring. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to King of Kings. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like, when you get, when when they take out the drama, when they take out the 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 the, the people in the fascinating aspects, the fascinating aspects, they either focus on dates or they focus on on the legit exactly what we can prove. Then it gets boring, and that's unfortunate. When, it when takes the to, humans out of the story, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. When you're trying to describe history as a chronological date of events instead of mm-hmm. well. You don't forget the drama here where right. know, Alexander's mother might have killed her father, you know, his Alexander's father. You don't know. I right. Mean, <laughs> exactly. Okay. But well, anyway, let's get started yeah. with the trivia. Okay. Um, so, Dan, we created, uh, I, I wrote five questions. Scott doesn't know these answers either. So we're just going to have you play Scott. Um, which Now, is this about very... the show uh, Judgment at Nineveh? That's correct. So okay, I want you guys to know I have not heard that show since 2007. So we so we will we will see what we can do. I told Scott he was really dreading this. He's like Dan's gonna kick my ass. And I said maybe not. I I said maybe not. He hasn't probably hasn't listened to this. And imagine how many books he's read. Like your brain must be so soaked with facts that maybe this stuff seeped out a long time ago. We're gonna find out. Long time ago, exactly. Who knows? We're gonna find out. Okay. So we just got five questions. Typically, we would do 10, but I want it to be respectful of your time. So for Judgment at Nineveh Trivia, we have five questions, okay? The first question, which Assyrian king laid waste to Babylon? Well, there were multiples. Correct. Um, So in the podcast, you talked about where historians equated it to a nuclear explosion. He laid waste so thoroughly. I think you I'm said when say, Dyer said that. So how does this work? Do I answer or does he answer? Or do How do we do this? Well, typically we would have Scott write it on his board. And then we'd have you write it on a board. But, you know, anyway, it doesn't. I Here, I'll give you a piece of paper and a pen, yeah, Scott. There you go. So, so, Dan, you'll say it after Scott writes his down. Okay. So that way we know he doesn't copy from you. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is for all the marbles, baby. Hey, all right. Hey, that's right. You know. Listen, he, he wants to, and, and spelling doesn't count, Scott. Remember, I told you that. Okay, you're done. You know I'm terrible at okay. spelling. Okay, all right, Dan, go ahead with your answer. I think it's Sennacherib, isn't it? That is correct. Scott, what did you write? Ashburnipal. Nope, no. Nope. Good guess, though. Like, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure Ashurbanipal didn't do it either. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, but they, I, they all had a long-running problem. It's like France right. and Germany, you know, the yep. Babylon Assyria exactly. thing. <laughs> exactly. But you did you did mention how, in the podcast, how Gwen Dyer, I said, accounted, basically it was like a nuclear bomb. They they destroyed Babylon so thoroughly. He yeah, said with muscle power. Pill. Yeah, yeah with muscle, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like a nuclear bomb if you had to could do it with, like, muscle power. Wait a minute. I have to interject. I told you he would remember. Well, we'll I see. That's only one question. No, 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 no. I'm talking, Dan. You are you are quoting yourself verbatim. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that just shows you somehow that got burned into the brain. I guess. Yeah. Well, you probably said it a lot of times when you're recording it too. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Question two. Yeah. We ready? All right. Once the Elamites were defeated by the Assyrians, which groups of people migrated into their territory? Well, goodness, that's another one of those long-running things where they fought forever. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, are, are you, let me know when I can answer. 
All right, Scott wrote down his answer. You go ahead, Dan. Okay, well, after the Elamites, uh, uh, the Medes and the Persians and Anshan and those places took over. That's correct. Well, I said Babylonians. So yeah. I guess I... No, the Medes and the Persians worked <laughs> with the Babylonians, right? Um, yes, to, 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 to take finish. down well, Assyria. Well, I guess I shouldn't get ahead of myself. Are we, are we, might for, be are we previewing? Okay. We might be. I don't know. All right. Syraxis is often cited with creating which unified state from a collection of city-states? Uh, well, he's the one who created the Medes. Wait a second. Let Scott uh, write down uh, his answer first. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Jump the gun. It's okay. He'll I get, he'll get that one right now. I, don't, I talked over you, so he didn't hear you. No, I don't okay. think I'll get this wrong anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay, Dan, sure go ahead. These? Wait a minute. 100%. Are, are you sure you got these from the podcast? 100%. I've listened to it twice in the past 24 hours, and, you're, and I'm getting these. I'm just doing terrible. Well, I feel like maybe you, your brain is old now, and you don't absorb facts. That's, that's probably fair. Right. Oh, that happens okay. to all of us. It sure does. <laughs> okay. So, Dan, what, go ahead with your answer. I'll read the question well, again. Syraxis is often credited with creating which unified state from a collection of city-states? Well, he's the one that founded the Median Empire, right? Correct. All right. So I'm not even going to dig myself. Apparently, I was uh, I was incorrect about Dan not remembering this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not. But that's just history. That's not from the podcast. Well, yeah, but that's, that's where just we learned history. it. Yeah, but, okay. but we learned it from your podcast. <laughs> that's just ancient history, baby. That's true. All right. So the capture of which? A question for the capture of which nation led to the overextension? Of the Assyrian Empire and its eventual downfall. The capture of which nation led to the overextension of the Assyrian Empire and its eventual downfall? All right, you ready for me or I'll enter whenever? Scott, you wrote it down? Yep. Okay, go ahead, Dan. Well, that's Egypt. That's correct. I got Egypt as well. All right, Scott's on the board. On the board. Scott's Four doing okay. Let's not yeah. hassle Scott. <laughs> I'm that, on the board. It's, it's kind of what we do here, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, question five. This is a multiple choice question. What year did Syraxis destroy the ancient city of Asher? Again, what year? I'm going to give you multiple choice. What year did Syraxis destroy the ancient city of Asher? A, 712 BCE. B, 640 BCE. C, 302 BCE. And D, 614 BCE. Again, A, 712 BC, B, 640 BC, C, 302 BC, and D, 614 BC. All right, Scott, you got an answer? Yep. Dan, you got an answer? You're going to hear the, the, I, the I choices again. I think it's B, 640. Scott? I said 614. It's 614. It is D. Awesome, Scott. Oh, See? no. So you get look at it, it was four to two. Not bad. I'll take it. I'll yeah. take it. Oh, that's cool. That's fun, Dan. Thank you for playing. Well, you're still no no, no problem. Mad <laughs> about that last answer, but I'm competitive. <laughs> well, so I put six forty because you did mention how there was no history uh the records of uh of the Assyrians basically fell off after six forty. Um, and you mentioned that some historians thought that's because the people who they conquered them went and destroyed the records from then. So I put that year because that wasn't a year that you mentioned. No, I so, was trying to remember too when it all ended. 
uh, uh, Ashurbanipal's last, I mean, he's, he's the last big king. They had some guys mm -hmm. afterwards, but I was trying to remember when it all ended. And then you said Asher, and I was trying to remember that Nineveh is a different year. And yep. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, good. <laughs> Nineveh was 612. So, 612, that's the classic year, yeah. Uh-huh. That, that's why I didn't pick that one. I wanted to No, make that's it the one difficult. that's burned into my brain, yeah. Uh-huh. There we go. <laughs> Okay, so then I just we could talk a little bit about the episode for a few minutes, Dan. Um, sure, sure. Now I know you haven't went back and listened to it since 2007. I know you've mentioned on other podcasts before that you usually don't go back and re-listen to. Yeah, it. I can't stand to do that. Yeah, you don't like to hear your own voice. That and uh, I just hear the things I would want to redo. I mean, Judgment in Nineveh is a perfect example of you know those old shows are so short, and it was a different style back then. Uh, if I was, I feel like we wasted a lot of really good topics with that old <laughs> style that if I was doing that show today, it's a four to six hour show, uh, sure. maybe two different uh, episodes, you know, so uh, I, all I can hear in it is all the things I would do now. So the I don't go back and listen. To it. Yeah, yeah, it tortures me. I but, bet. And you know, Dan, I don't. It, once we record these episodes, typically I don't like to go back and listen to them either, but for completely no. different reasons. Because <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not because I don't care at all. Uh, it's because I don't want to hear my voice. So okay, yeah, no, I, I get that. I'm the same way. <laughs> all right. So um, this is the first episode that I think you ever talk about the statue in the sand metaphor because you you, you start off with talking about Planet of the Apes, and you you know you go with that whole they they that the metaphor there and how civilizations have always collapsed and i was just wondering is that something you think about often and if so is it something you're worrying about extra now more than say 10 years ago well you know it's not one thing and i'm going to answer this question with some context because you know i'm addicted to context it's going to take a, a minute to answer it but take your time most of the episodes we try to have what we call in house here a spine so an underlying philosophy, you know, history and history and philosophy are related to each other. Um, what, what was it? Thucydides, I think, said that uh, history is philosophy taught by example. And so what we try to do in a lot of the shows is to have a, an underlying philosophical sort of point that's, that's a throughput in the story. Now, we don't do this in every show because I don't want to slip into any sort of a format or any sort of a pattern, because I think it it limits you creatively and you begin to fall into sort of ruts creatively. So I, tr I, I deliberately switch up the way we do every show so that even if two shows later we go back to something we've done before, we don't do it consecutively because I don't want to get in. Like, for example, the shows we just finished on the, on the transition of the Nordic peoples to Christianity really didn't have a throughput spine, which Thor's Angels which that show was really a continuation of, didn't have a throughput spine either. But Judgment mm -hmm. at Nineveh's throughput spine was that Statue of Liberty in the Sand thing you mentioned. Uh, and right. it goes back to the Xenophon story. Um, for those who know their ancient writings, Xenophon was a Greek general who commanded uh, Greek mercenaries in the Persian Civil War. And then after they were on the losing side. And then after they lost, they had to manage to try to get home, on foot, of course, from the middle of what's now Iraq, uh, all the way back to Greece, and they were harried the whole way. And while they were retreating from their pursuers, they ran into these cities that were ancient, even in their era, right, that existed centuries before their own time, and that were grander than the cities that they were used to seeing, with the possible exception of Babylon. Um, and so 
it represented something that we're not used to seeing in the modern world. We're used to seeing ancient civilizations, but not ancient civilizations that are greater than our own. It would be like running into like an alien civilization in the Middle East today where you look and you go, oh my God, they had skyscrapers, you know, 3,000 years ago that were taller than ours now. And the implications of that is that if a civilization like that can fall, then any civilization can fall, especially if you live in one that's not as grand as that. And so the throughput on that was represented by the Statue of Liberty in the Sand idea, which is that wonderful moment from Planet of the Apes, which I love so much, because what it does is you would have to use a couple hundred words to give the same sense that that one image gives you in a blinding flash of insight when you see it. The Statue of Liberty, like decaying, you know, buried up to almost the shoulders in the sand and what that implies. And so looking at the city of Nineveh several hundred years after its conquest, disintegrating in the sand is the equivalent for a guy like Xenophon that Charlton Heston has that same moment when he's seeing the Statue of Liberty in the sand. So the throughput on that episode was, you know, can our civilization ever fall like that civilization? And what would it feel like to be Xenophon in a situation like that? Right. Yeah. I, 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 it's something I think about a lot because like you said, that was the high point of civilization for a, a lot of years to come. And then you have that again after the fall of the Roman empire, at least in, you know, smaller scale. Cause it was, you know, again, that was just in Europe, right? The, the, the dark ages, the middle ages, you know, all that. But well, what have we called that before? The bunny hop rhythm of history, right? Two steps yep. forward, one step uh -huh. back. And and this gets, you know, when you go to Blueprint for Armageddon and we're talking about things like the Great Filter, which is uh, related to, yep. uh, you know, Drake's equation and the Fermi sure. paradox and this idea about whether or not civilizations naturally reach these choke points that most civilizations don't get past. And, and, and whether or not that's something that happens multiple times in a, in a global history, like, right. So Assyria would represent one Roman mm -hmm. empire would represent one. Um, and if maybe we're going to have that happen again, or if there's a last time that it happens, I was reading, I have a great book for catastrophists called a uh, global catastrophic risk by um, it, it's every chapter is by a different expert, but it's edited by Oxford philosopher, um, Nick Bostrom. And in it, every chapter is something that could happen that could just destroy us. So one of them's on volcanic activity. Another one's on plagues. Another one's on nuclear war. Another one's on nanotechnology. Uh, another one's on AI. And um, when you read it, Nick Bostrom has a, an interesting definition of, of existential threat. Because when I hear existential threat, I think wiped out. But he also says existential threat can mean a civilization getting knocked back in terms of capability and then never reaching that level again. So imagine if, you know, we had a nuclear war in this planet and we somehow lost the capability to put satellites into space and have an Internet and never got back there so that even though we weren't wiped out as a species, he would say that that was an existential development. And I found that kind of stuff just fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. Well, and just so you guys know, every time we talk about the Statue of Liberty, the statue in the stand, sand, I keep thinking of Charlton Heston and like when he looks up to the sky and says, you blew it up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's the, that iconic scene. And I, and I think you maniacs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
there's one thing though that I that I I don't know that it compares. Like if you say like you know the Persian Empire, yeah, they were a global empire for the time, but as of right now, they got you know you had you know medieval knights and samurai existing at the same time. They didn't even know it existed. They didn't even know each other existed. But today, we kind of know everything that's going on around the globe. So I just don't know unless it's uh, unless it's like an extinction event type scenario, if if civilization can get knocked that far back, hmm. uh, unless it's an extinction level type scenario. Yeah, I don't know. Well, like it would have to be global, right? It couldn't it couldn't yeah. be in these little little nodes of civilization that existed. I mean, you you know, you could say Mesoamerica was one node, the Chinese mm-hmm. East Asian area was another node, Europe and the Middle East and North Africa another node. In those days, wiping out a node was was akin to losing, you know, your local power station whereas now we're on the, all the same grid historically speaking. But there's nothing that prevents I mean, look at it this way. You know, we talked about in Destroyer of Worlds, some of the theories on what nuclear war would do, how many bombs it would take to really cause chain reactions of problems, um, the megatonnage involved in some of the more modern weapons and what the major megatonnage weapons might do. Um, you know, with the right amount, with the right amount or the wrong amount, depends on how you want to look <laughs> at it, uh, of nuclear weapons hitting some of these nodes of civilization. Um if some of the theories of like the think tanks, the Rand people and all those kinds of groups came true, um, you could, I mean, just the fires alone and the damage that the smoke in the sky could do, I think one could argue could cause chain reactions that would take a long time to climb out of. Uh, When you look at what some of the volcanic activity experts think now did in terms of farming yields and and um, multiple winters that seem to never have a summer. I mean, there's all these sorts of things that because they've never happened before are theories, but you explode 20 or 40 or 100 nuclear weapons, all of them much, much larger than the Hiroshima bomb all at the same time, rather rather than have nuclear tests where, you know, it's carried out over a longer period of time. Nobody knows what happens in those kinds of situations. So I think that's when you start to say, okay, do we really think we're going to be able to maintain current capabilities after something like that? And, and is it permanent or is it a question of, okay, for 10 years, we're operating at a lower level than we're used mm-hmm. to, but we eventually recover? I, I don't know. I think that's part of what makes that episode uh, so terrifying. Uh, and interesting. I mean, it's interesting that's to think true. about what happens. And if this has already happened on other worlds and other places, and that that's what makes the great filter so hard to get past. Well, yeah, I have to bring up one point that I'm sorry, it's just sticking out. So Dan, I, I just learned this uh, recently, and I, I used to work in the metal industry. Um, but metal that was forged pre 1945 is going at a premium. Because uh, something wrong, something going on with the ionosphere any metal or iron smelted after 1945 is less strong and less dense because of uh because of nuclear weapons we set off in 1945 and after in the tests yeah yeah wow that is fascinating i've never heard that that's really interesting and it goes to show that i mean like uh, when they when they're able to tell how much radiation is around and it's never been the same since those first tests in in uh in in mm-hmm. 
uh, the New Mexican desert and stuff. It, it's fascinating what we're capable of doing now to the planet, isn't it? Because once amazing. upon a time, we, we had very limited abilities to to affect the natural surroundings. We could burn forests and do all that. And we thought that was big. But now look at what we're able to do. Yeah. I mean, if we survive it, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think there's a better chance. I mean, Lynn, you've mentioned this before, Dan, like, you know, are we past that point or are we still, you know, it's the, the gun to the head analogy. Um, and it's like any, any war game I've ever heard about or listened to. It's like, even at, you know, as the, whoever it is, whoever, whichever nuclear power is closest to defeat, um, any war game I've ever read, nobody ever pushes the button. Like the last guy is just like, you know what? It's over. Or, because it, it just it it yeah you might lose but then everybody loses so anyway sorry to because of no but no let, let's explore that because I think sure. it's fascinating there's um there's a great book I read once called the dead hand and it's about the system that the Soviets set up so that if the West ever got the jump on them I hope I hope I'm uh, I hope I'm describing this correctly but it's so that if the West ever got the jump on them with a first strike and took out their command and control capabilities, figuring that you would neuter their ability to strike back, the system was set up to launch anyway, um, without humans. Um, I just read a story the other day talking about uh, the impact that AI is going to have on nuclear weapons use. And I think, you know, when we did Destroyer of Worlds, there was um, one part of the story, and I'm going from memory here, but where one of the theorists, because there were a lot of philosophers and theorists working on this, because you're talking about a realm where there's no real world experience, right? So without a major nuclear war going on, you're left to theorists and some of the, let's be honest, some of the smartest people alive too, uh, trying to figure out what all this means without real world data. And one of them was suggesting that you didn't even have to have, you know, your metaphorical red button actually hooked up to anything that it was serving the actual purpose of deterrence just by having it there and that no one needed to know that there was no wires connected to it or anything for it to do its job. But even if that was the case, I think what you're seeing now, and and I would argue it's not the case because these people are so trained to act almost like robots anyway, that there's very little human agency. But I think now with the combination of AI and the things like the dead hand and automated systems, that it is set up specifically to make what you were just talking about impossible. So even if the human element might have prevented us from having a a counter strike that has no purpose but to kill lots of other people once deterrence has failed, I think that we're slowly but surely removing that element of control that would act in a sort of a merciful capacity, if you will, uh, from the equation, which is you know doubly upsetting. Yeah, it yeah. is. Because <laughs> that's the... That's the thing that you can hang your hat on so far, right? Yeah. Is that nobody in during the whole Cold War, like it didn't happen, and there was times where it looked like it might, but humans. Well, and I think if I unless I'm wrong here, I believe there are times when human beings actually did step in. Uh, there's a famous story of a Russian who didn't launch uh, mm-hmm. when maybe his protocol had told him that he should, um, based on you know what what the electronic instrumentation was telling him. Uh, I think there have been other cases, too, where people have just said, uh, I don't believe what I'm seeing here. We're not going to launch. Uh, there's a great movie. You guys might have remembered it. Henry Fonda played the president. It was called Failsafe back in the day. And the whole movie is based on uh, sort of an electronic error 
suggesting that there's nuclear war about to happen and both the Russians and the Americans trying to somehow get each other to understand that it's not real, talk each other's hawks down, turn the automated systems that they've created uh, uh, away from what they're trained to do. And I think something like that is a fascinating example of uh, how we can, you know, the, the, it's what it what's, if you read The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, it's a wonderful example of how human systems can be put into place that after a certain point, take the human agency out of it. And, mm -hmm. and ever since that time period, I think people have been aware that the systems we create can end up pulling us into circumstances that nobody wants. I think it's why Kennedy uh, had his advisors all read the guns of August. And I think that's why it played a role in how the Cuban Missile Crisis turned out, because you can go from pushing events and having control over them to at some point, and it's an indeterminable point. So in other words, you don't know it's coming till it's here. Events start pulling you. Um, and you're and I, I think, yes. And I think that's an example of, of nuclear wars. Are the, one of the best examples I can think of where something like that due to the systems we've created can, can put human beings in circumstances where nobody on either side wants to be. Yeah. Right. Oh, and you, you mentioned, uh, uh, your, your movie analogy. Mine would be like Crimson Tide with, uh, I think it was Gene Hackman and, uh, uh Sean, Sean Connery Crimson Tide, I think was, no, no, that was the hunt for Red October. Oh yeah. 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 All right. Crimson Tides. I think it was, uh, uh, Denzel Washington. Yeah, it was. And, uh, yep. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman wants to fire the missiles and, and yeah, Denzel Washington yeah. mutinies and stops them. Yeah. Hopefully that would still happen. Yep. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that has actually been a great discussion. <laughs> I, thanks for, okay. So now I've got a couple more questions, Dan, if you still got time. Listen, you guys take as long as you want. Let's just do a good show here for you. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. You know, you've always been a guy who is uh, willing to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's how you get six hour shows, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And I love those six hour shows. All right, so this question is from a frequent contributor to our podcast, um, author Matt Bella, and he asks, when you think about the major conflicts in the world today, what are some reference materials that allow you to help understand the historical context behind them? Hmm. Okay, this brings up the, the ever-present point about how much um, information and circumstances from the past are applicable to the now, right? So some mm -hmm. things are and some things aren't and the art in trying to figure this out is in determining what you can use and what you can't um so if we're talking about for example the israeli-palestinian circumstance i think past history is very helpful mm -hmm. uh, because the conflict is similar to how it's been um in the major senses of the word um the situation between russia and ukraine is different um, and maybe it's not that you can't use historical um, insight to help you. It's maybe that you have to go back farther and skip over periods. I'm not sure how much the Soviet era is helpful, but maybe going back to czarist Russia is. This reminds me more of a czarist Russia type foreign policy than a Soviet one per se. Um and China, the thing with China, for example, is very difficult because China has been down for 150, 200 years. And yet I would argue, you know, along with like 10,000 other people, that China is just asserting its more natural role uh, when you consider its geographic size, its population, its historical place in, in, in that region. 
it should be a global superpower. But it hasn't been for so long that trying to use the last couple hundred years in history as some sort of guide for how you can gauge what China should be doing or how they should respond, I think is really difficult because the world has obviously changed uh, in a couple hundred years. And yet China hasn't had a role on the world stage commiserate with what they have now in that time period. So I would argue that sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not. I think in the in the Middle East, when you involve Israel and and their neighbors, I think the last hundred years is really useful. Um, with something like China, I, I don't find recent history all that much of a guide. So I guess the answer is it depends. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Um, thanks. I think that's a good that's a good way to look at it. And one thing, my wife's Russian, by the way, Dan. Uh, and one thing George and I have talked about before is um, on a previous podcast that we did. Um, I didn't know this, but I think it was Gorbachev uh, was was Ukrainian. Uh, and during when he was running the USSR, he actually gifted Ukraine. Uh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Is he, he gifted, Georgian? Was he Georgian? Uh, it was either Khrushchev or Gorbachev. I forget which. Uh, I forget. It was one of the two. But Khrushchev. No, I, think I think Khrushchev might have been Ukrainian. Khrushchev. So he gifted Crimea to Ukraine, and like nobody in the USSR at the time cared. Um, but then because it was all know, one my, country. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I've I've made this analogy before that that Crimea is like the Pearl Harbor for uh, is like the Pearl Harbor equivalent for Russia because uh, it's their only access into the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and, uh, I mean, basically, unless you're going to go all the way around the Baltic Sea or all the way around the Pacific, uh, that is, that's the only way to get to the Atlantic, uh, for, for the Russians. So anyway, I don't exactly remember why I brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just a little interesting fact. I didn't know as an American that my, my Russian wife, uh, imparted to me. So sure. Anyway. Well, but you know, it's part of a larger historical trend, which is, you know, and you see this, it's funny because if you look at the, at the end of major wars or the, or, or the changing of the guard in international relations, you always see this. So look at the end of the First World War, end of the Second World War, end of the Cold War. You see these multinational empires lose their grip on some of these peoples who maybe don't want to be part of these multinational empires. Or, or um, I mean, this is how after the First World War, you get the creation of the Czechoslovakias and the Yugoslavias and the recreations of the Polands. After the Second World War, uh, you see new states develop. After the Cold War falls, you see new, uh, um, I mean, the breakup of the Soviet Union is a perfect example where you see all sorts of new modern day versions of older countries reappear. And so I think something like what you mentioned with Ukraine, I mean, this is a perfect example of the sorts of national aspirations that arise in multinational empires when they fall apart, these people have a chance to reassert uh, their national aspirations. I mean, the Ukrainians, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, uh, were happy as heck to have an opportunity to break off from the Soviet Union and have some sort of a Ukrainian national state. So this is these are the sorts of things that happens when the empires that are able to maintain control through violence and coercion and military force lose that ability. I think a lot of these places start, you know, rising back to the top and, and, and retaking what it is they want. And this, you know, in a way, this also, I think, reflects on the Israeli-Palestinian situation in the Middle East also. It's this question about the rights of nations to be formed 
out of people who consider themselves to be homogeneous uh, cultural or national groups. I mean, if you look at Woodrow Wilson's 14 points that he put out during the First World War, which was considered to be this high-minded document full of you know liberal sentiments, mm-hmm. one of the things that it talks about is the rights of peoples to form their own countries based on their own ethnic groups and aspirations. And at the time, this was considered to be a high-minded goal, right? In other words, if you look at the Kurds today who want a Kurdistan, well, they want a Kurdistan so that they can have a country for Kurds. But if you look at one of the things that the Israelis are being slammed for right now, it's it's being a, a what do they call it? Um, uh, it's it, for being an ethno state, right? This idea that that they should mm-hmm. not want a country that is is Israeli, uh, and yet it just shows you how values change. Because fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, uh, in the era from the late eighteen hundreds to really most of the twentieth century, this was considered not just a viable thing, but peoples who were large enough it was thought by most people should have their own place so that they could have a country that encapsulated their historic borders, their historic culture. They should be able to be free from some other culture. For example, a Ukrainian people should be able to have a Ukraine free from Russian overlordship where they're forced to speak, you know, another language maybe, or forced to worship a certain way or being told what to do or have a foreign policy that somebody's Mm -hmm. telling them, you know, so in other words, it's, it's, it's a wonderful example of how historical values can change, making something that was a virtue uh, when I was a kid even into something that's considered a bad thing now. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it is interesting to think about, especially when you think about that's an idea that maybe that comes from an American's perspective too, because we are made up of such a a hodgepodge of cultures and peoples that the idea that a, a nation should be, could be just one people or culture feels like an ant and and you know an, an anthema to to us right yeah it feels like, like a recipe for conflict doesn't it exactly but right but then again <laughs> it also is the way that we've always done it sure and so it is it's tricky that's a great answer thanks yeah. okay <laughs> do you have you ever read the book the fourth turning by neil howe no, but I but but it's been recommended to me before, and so I understand a little bit. I think, but maybe you can ex- the concept was what I was going to say, but maybe you can explain to me so that I understand it better. Well, I was just wondering what you thought of the uh, the concept. So the concept is okay. Uh, human nature really goes; it's cyclical. It goes in these four generation. Um, uh, each, each cycle is a he calls them. Uh, I forgot. Anyway, they're they're about 80 to 100 years each turning. And so there's four generations or so, 20 to 25 year human generations in there. And each 20 to 25 years or 18 to 25 years or so has a different characteristic. And they kind of blend together at the edges. But at the and then in that fourth in that fourth um turning, so the fourth part of that cycle, because of human nature, you're going to end up with some kind of a crisis. And then you end up with at the beginning starts over again in kind of like, you know, well, it's kind of like your analogy. silk slipper, silk yeah. slippers now. I was about to say the same thing. So it's the, according to the fourth turning, it's basically like your wooden shoes going up the stairs, mm-hmm. and then silk slippers coming down, and then you have a societal crisis after eighty to a hundred years, and then it's wooden shoes going back up. So it's it's kind of like a a, a mini uh, rise and fall. 
mm-hmm. an inter inter intergenerational rise and fall right. over four generations. I guess that would be my best analogy. No, so that's what I that's what I kind of had 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 thought it was, mm-hmm. and obviously. And I was going to bring up the silk slippers, uh, uh, wooden shoes analogy too, as you as you would know, I would. Um, Great mind, but, Dan. But mm-hmm. but it's an old idea, right? I mean, that's an ancient idea. You can trace that yeah. back to ancient Greece at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not that's true, first of all, I'm always leery of applying those uh, ideas, not because I don't agree with them, but because I feel like. We live, and I was just talking to my wife about this the other day, but I'm sure lots of people have this conversation. We live in an era that I think is off the historical map. And I, and I, was, I was talking about uh, the difference between the last, and I may do something about this at some point, the last analog generation and the first digital one. Because right. basically, you know, they, they, there was a saying that somebody had right around the time of the First World War that somebody who had been born around that time period had more in common with the people who lived in ancient Greece than people who were born just four years later. And 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 that shows a certain continuity wow. with the way human beings had always lived when things like the speed of a horse was as fast as one could travel on land. And that was as fast as one could travel on land for thousands and thousands of years, right? So all of a mm-hmm. sudden, four years, five years, 10 years later, that changes. Well, then that's a different world. And so when we apply these ancient ideas about, for example, uh, the cyclical nature of history or the, you know, the Chinese have beliefs like this too. I mean, it's kind of goes into their whole uh, horoscope thing that, 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 you mm-hmm. know, you get these generations and that because of the way they interact with each other, you can reliably sort of predict how they're going to be. Um, that maybe, and I, I don't, I'm not insinuating that I believe it was ever true, but if it was ever something that made some sense, I think you throw all that out the window once we hit somewhere in the 20th century, because I think that the silk slippers, uh, wooden shoes circumstance is so drastically altered at its core that it doesn't mean you throw it out the window entirely, but that it's going to be so different that I don't think you could, it's like comparing stats in the sporting world from different eras where there's so many different things that you're not sure anymore whether it's apples and oranges or not. You know what I'm right, saying? That's a great analogy. Well, or you have to modify what wooden shoes, the definition yeah, of what yeah, wooden it, shoes Yeah, it's a different, you're, you know, you're saying because mm-hmm. of the way that, you know, you're not allowed to clothesline the guy coming over the middle in football anymore. Does that change right. the way stats work with quarterbacks and touchdowns? I mean, I just don't right. know anymore when it comes to, I mean, we live in such a different world now that comparing it to anything like I, I think you could still do the wooden shoes silk slippers thing in 1900 and maybe make a case that if it was ever viable let's throw that asterisk in there that that it would still be apples and a- apples in 1900 i think by the time you get to 1999 i'm not sure it's apples and apples anymore it's interesting to think about because if we had a depression like the great depression would we would we be hardened like they were even yeah, now i think with, that applies no i think that applies uh, uh i do and, and and you know people will talk about that as a reset and if you look at the way that people were talking in the 1920s even presidents like uh, calvin coolidge and stuff in the united mm-hmm. states was talking about these kinds of things as being good that it you know it's almost the same thing that war can do sometimes and i think i i tweeted something out on twitter once upon a time about war being 
something that's a kind of a recalibration. And that obviously right. 90% of war is negative, but there's a part of it that, that sort of reminds us of, you know, what's important. It puts the Kardashianification of our life, if you will, into a different perspective. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it seriifies, if I can create a new word there, um, our outlook a little bit more. I mean, uh, some things become luxuries for us to consider in times of peace and um, plenty and all that kind of stuff that go away um, right. in times of strife and problems and want. I mean, look at this generation that's growing up in Ukraine right now. You right. can't tell me that they're going to be quite a bit different for the rest of their lives, including how they raise their children and how their children turn out than the generation previously. I mean, well, that's it, kind of the premise of the fourth turning, though. I mean, yeah, really, yeah. That's well, kind well of the, the premise of the silk slippers, wooden shoes. Idea. Exactly. Yeah. You're so far removed from the hard times that you end up having hard times. Yeah. And then you end up with a generation that survived the hard times and it takes another three generations for them to forget the hard times and then so that things get so bad that you have hard times again. But that, the and, idea that it is cyclical in a sense that one can predict it right. is what I think I would have a problem. I mean, if you're saying that when hard times come, they're going to change you, I think that's a truism. Sure. If you're saying you can kind of imagine, okay, we're in this stage now, so the next stage is going to... That's the part that I think is tougher to work with. Well, and sometimes in the book, it felt like he was kind of drawing a bullseye in that, or drawing, you know, an, or shooting, shooting an arrow. arrow drawing a bullseye. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, guys have all so, of my sayings. I know. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, shit, I'm using Dan's saying right to Dan. <laughs> I didn't make Dan. that up, by the way. I'm not claiming credit. I didn't make it up. Oh, I just, no, I, no, I no, use no, no, no. Yeah. You're, you're, you're the Churchill for but, this podcast. You quote, everything we quote is from like, you at some oh, point. God, Here, okay, I'm going to get in trouble then. I'm going to quote, uh, uh, Glenn, was it Glenn Dyer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, okay? And I know I know that's not, but he, he mentioned that on one of your podcasts. That's one of the most fascinating uh, interviews you've ever done, by the way, in my oh, opinion. Oh, it was either him or James Burke. Uh, uh, James I love Burke both had of that, those. And Burke had that great thing where he, he, he had went to describe to his professor back in college something like that he got an idea from somebody else and he was very apologetic about it. And his professor said, young yeah. man, where do you think good ideas come from? Implying that everybody's good ideas were stolen from somebody. But right. I misspoke. It was James Burke. And I use his internet, uh, internet of the mind, uh, neur neurological connections all the time. Uh, because Isn't that's he awesome? Just Quinn Dyer is awesome too, by the way. I mean, I'm not to, not <laughs> yeah. to take anything away. You got I like some both great guests on the addendums, dude. Like, I mean, killer guests. Like, I I listened to the rest of history because I I found them through your through your addendum podcast, and those guys are fascinating. They just yep. did a a five part series on the Aztecs that is just awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I like those guys. Man, they're good. Okay, all right, Dan, I got another one for you. What do you think about the our understanding of human history through the ancient DNA. Uh, have, do you look into that at all? Do you ever follow any of that? Do you find that interesting? Absolutely. I mean, this is, listen, this is part, we talk about this on the show, that there is, um, there is a limit to what the traditional historical method can tell us about the past, especially since traditionally so much of it is based on uh, the written records, right? And we obviously mm -hmm. know that tons of societies didn't write or a lot of human history is pre-writing, um, and that more and more historians, and you know, I'm not one, I always have to throw that out there, but more and more historians work with a number of different disciplines, 
bioarchaeologist, a geoenvironment. I mean, the number of different names mm -hmm. that that now work to give us a complete mosaic, each one of them contributing their own tile uh, to understanding the past is crazy. I mean, even something like we did a show, which is probably pretty close to around the time we did Judgment at Nineveh called Darkness Buries the Bronze Age, which yep. if I could redo today would have so much more information than we had available at the time we did that show based on sure. all these other disciplines coming in and adding their bits of factual data that helped create a much more complete picture for something where there is just huge holes in the way we understood that even 40 or 50 years ago, right? And it's right. you know climate and catastrophes that might have happened and all sorts of and the DNA along with the um the isotope information that 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 between the two of them, one can show uh, uh, the genetic information. The isotopes can show things like uh, what people were eating when they grew up. So in the right. show we just did on the Vikings, who got everywhere, right? I mean, they, they, they traveled all over the place. So trying to figure out whether a skeleton that you're examining uh, was a descendant of Vikings, which the DNA might show you, or whether they were actually born in Scandinavia. The Scandinavian part requires the isotopes to tell you what this person was eating when they grew up and maybe mm -hmm. you know what the climate was like. And you, those two things work in sync with each other to really begin to illuminate stuff that if you were a historian operating in 1920 or 1930, where you used written information um, you know, tablets from Nineveh to take us back to that idea. Uh, and that right. was all you had to work with. You're hamstrung, but you add the tablets and written information to the bioarchaeology, to the DNA, to the isotopes, to all these different things. And it's going to illuminate the parts of history that not weren't just dark, but that didn't have any sort of okay, hold hope on one of ever seeing any light, you know? So... I yeah. think that oh, and also the idea that, that, yeah, yeah. Did I yeah, break something? Uh, that, that, that's all right. No, no, the laptop got, got unplugged. We'll just edit it this part. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, we'll the, last, the last five seconds. We'll leave it in. We're not perfect. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, you know, what's interesting, and, and one thing I, I thought about when you were explaining that, Dan, is um, I had a dentist. Uh, and, and he told me, he goes, you know, the reason why so many kids have have to have braces is because we're eating softer foods at younger ages than we had to previously. And that's why our jaw lines are actually smaller. That wasn't a dentist. That was me. No, that was a dentist. My dentist told me that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. This is like 20 years ago. Oh, OK. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating how all of that has changed our our whole everything. The other thing is inter breeding um, breeding partners has changed as well. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you can. Sure. Anyway. All right, Dan. <laughs> so we were talking about ancient DNA that you're right. That's it's another thing that another discipline. I wonder if you if you look into it all is evolutionary psychology, like the study about how our evolution kind of helped form our, our psychology. Is that anything that's ever interested you? I'm woefully undereducated on that subject. So uh, okay. uh, you can tell me something and I'll find nah. it interesting, but I'm not sure I could talk <laughs> intelligently about that at all. I, I don't think I can either. I was wondering if you could, and that's good enough. So I got—I have answered that question. All right. We have a couple fun ones. Uh, what's and the then, Oakland Eastwood line? A man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> I know my limitations. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So 
Which ancient general would be the best at the head of a modern army? Julius Caesar. Ah. George nice. said that. I said Genghis Khan because I think the, the speed of mechanization would really play to some of the strong suits that the uh, the Mongols really uh, employed during their, their battles. Also you know, true. here's what I would say about that is that I just I don't think we know enough about Genghis Khan's personal makeup to know how flexible his thinking would be, um, you, you know, when you try to teach mm. him about new concepts that he didn't know about. Right. So in other words, he was he was a commander of, you know, you know, my feelings on the guy. Uh, I, I obviously think he's a genius general, but he's also right. a tribal general who's fighting in, in an army whose tactics to some degree, because the Mongols uh, uh, took the tactics to the next level. But but these are tribal peoples that had fought that way going back to prehistoric times almost, right? The, the yep. Cimmerians fighting the Assyrians had elements mm -hmm. that were similar. So there's almost an innate uh, ability to understand if you grow up in that society how right. you should fight. So many of the same things the Mongols did, the Turks did before them, the Huns did before them. You know, in other words, this is a, a, a military tradition that's wrapped up in the lifestyle and the culture. Whereas right. a guy, and again, may, so so if we knew Genghis Khan better and had more information from Genghis Khan and could, could sort of read into the guy's psyche, he very well might have been exactly like you said. But we don't have that. He's a kind of a mystery in a lot of respects, whereas Caesar, we actually have his writings. Uh, now, he may have had another guy helping him, and it certainly had a propaganda value. So in the same way, you can't take Mein Kampf as gospel because Hitler's writing Mein Kampf for political reasons and for an audience and to influence. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, not, it's not straight up honesty, and neither was Caesar's stuff. But you get a sense of the man. And the one thing we can say about Caesar is this guy had weird gifts, which a lot of people, I mean, Napoleon had weird gifts. Um, but but the idea that the guy could dictate multiple letters at the same time from his litter when he's on the move, I mean, you just get this sense, okay, we got a special individual here, and it's going to take a special right. individual for you to bring in the time machine to the now, explain to them all the things that had changed in warfare since the time that they grew up in, and then let them with their mind figure out how they can apply all this new stuff that they just learned about in an effective way. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's going to take a special individual. And that is not to say that Genghis Khan is not special, but I think that the way he commanded is wrapped up in a culture and a fighting style that he inherited and that he perfected. And I don't know how well he would be able to adapt to tanks and airplanes. He might be fantastic, but I think we have a lot more information. For example, look at the Caesar compared to an Alexander. I don't think Alexander handles that as well as Caesar. And yet Alexander, if you're going to talk about generals who led from the front, maybe mm -hmm. one of the best ever, if not the best ever. But Caesar, Caesar could command from the front. He could command from the rear. He could command Napoleon's troops. Um, I would just, you know, when in doubt, I pick him. You know, that, that's very interesting because the next question I was going to ask you is what would have happened if Julius Caesar was in charge of the German army in World War I? <laughs> <laughs> well, that okay, so that's interesting because um, one of the things I like about Caesar is this idea that if, if his armies sit still for two minutes, they're building things. Mm -hmm. Um, that, and, and oh, if you look wow. at the first, if you look at the first world war, obviously the minute people sat still, they were building things. 
Um, right. So that's right up Caesar's alley. I think the difference would be, um, and I, you know, it's funny because you don't, I, I'm not sure that there would have been any way to break the log jam caused by the uh, temporary dominance of the defense that led to the trench warfare, right? The idea right. that until you got tanks integrated with aircraft, integrated with artillery, um, that you could restore mobility to the battlefield. Um, Gwen Dyer in his war uh, series had talked about the First World War creating what he called the continuous front and the Second World War putting the continuous front in motion. Um, I'm not sure that anybody, Caesar, Napoleon, any of those guys could have overcome the technological conditions that created a uh, uh, status, you know, where people couldn't mm -hmm. move, a sort of a stasis where you had battlefields like Ypres, where after three years of warfare, and you guys have heard me say this, you could smell it long before you could see it because they've been fighting right. over the same piece of ground now for years. And there were pieces of ground you just couldn't enter because they were absolutely no man's land. That's where the phrase was popularized. And so the bodies just stayed there, um, ground up into right. the soil. I don't, I don't know that Caesar or any command. I mean, a guy like Alexander is probably going to be completely stymied by that because he's a motion guy. And mm -hmm. so the idea that there would be no way to break that log jam. And I mean, even things, you know, one of the things I find interesting about the First World War is how tiny little things that don't seem very sophisticated at all made such a huge difference. I mean, who would think something like barbed wire would right. be such a game changer, but you mix it with the other elements, right? Machine mm -hmm. guns, all these. And barbed wire just becomes this thing where you don't even know how to get past it, right? If you're right. stuck out there trying to get through barbed wire while somebody's shooting at you with machine guns, that's a heck of a dynamic involved, right? And I don't know, I don't know any great general that's going to have any obvious solution other than coming up with new technology, right? That's why tanks were so amazing. They could crush right. the barbed wire and they were impervious to the machine guns. And that was what you needed. Right. So go ahead. And well, and that's why I would, my, you know, <coughs> and I'm sure if I read much further into uh, World War I taxes, you think like a, a feigned flight to draw your enemy out of their trenches until you eliminate them and then take over their trenches would have been, I, I, I know it wasn't possible, so don't, don't. No, but it's an interesting out. idea. And they did right. have, they did have moments where, you know, they say about the, the battle at Hastings in 1066, you know, there was, um there was an incident that some historians think was a deliberate feigned flight. Others think mm -hmm. it was an accidental feigned flight that drew a number of the Anglo-Saxons off the high ground. Um, there were times for example, in the war where the Germans who had been in positions that they took in the initial 1914 battles decided to pull back so that they could shorten their lines and create a more defensible situation using less men. And the stories of the allies finding out that the positions in front of them were basically unoccupied or had just a couple of pickets there to shoot a rifle every now and then to keep them sort of on their toes that almost has the effect of a feigned flight, but by the time the allies realized what they were dealing with and started to follow up, they ran into the next level of defenses. Um, mm. I think it's a fascinating subject. I, I don't know, and I'm not maybe not educate, edu educated or intelligent enough to figure out how that would have worked in a First World War context, right. um, but, but I think something like that's fascinating. I also think that the reconnaissance from the air 
that was right. available then might have made something like that a little bit more difficult to pull off. Also, the idea that, um, you know, when you're talking about a feigned flight, let's say you're fighting a, a Hunnic army or Genghis Khan's army, and the feigned flight involves 10,000 cavalrymen, that's one thing. But when you're talking about a feigned flight on a front that has millions of soldiers, um, I think, I, let's put it this way, the danger of a feigned flight was always that it could become a real one, right? Panic right. could set in and it could get out of control. The Mongols are supposed to have had a unit called the Mangadai who were, who were professional feigned flight people. And if you believe some of the stories, they actually were almost like actors where they could really make you think that they were frightened and out of their minds. But this is a small specialized unit. If you started mm -hmm. retreating hundreds of thousands of men or more, I think the danger gets higher and higher that the rumor mill between soldiers and all kinds of things might create an inordinate risk of things right. going sideways on you that you might decide was not worth the potential benefit. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's yeah. too much going on on a modern battlefield for that to really be able to pull that off. Maybe, I, I, maybe. I, I'm fascinated yeah. by the idea, and I'm thinking it's about It's an interesting one. <laughs> like, yeah. my, my mind was going like, hey, guys, we're going to... We're going to bomb the other line. Then we're going to jump out. We're going to run 25% of the way. Uh, and a bunch of you guys fall like you're getting shot. And then just everybody else. But the problem is the they judge. were really getting shot. I, I understand. So I don't know. If I'm that, trying to think of Are there any examples of that? I mean, my brain's going to the first right. and second world war. And the, I'm trying to think if there's any modern examples of that going on. I'm gonna have I to, wonder. I might hit the books after we're done with this. To see it what might I can need find to be out. more sophisticated than a traditional feigned flight. But wait, you know, it'd be like a. A feigned tactical retreat. Well, but if you're if you have a bunch of guys, let's say some of them will get shot, and you have a bunch of guys laying on the ground, sure, and they come in for the counteroffensive. Now you just created a pincer move where the guys behind you are still alive, and they're going to shoot at you the same guy. I mean, maybe it, it'd be a, it'd be a it's difficult maneuver, but it. I think it's fun to think about. Anyway, okay, uh, so we do a book club. Where we we choose we've done two episodes so far we do it on a, on a, on the Hardcore History Discord channel, and we pick a book from one of that you talk about in one of the podcast episodes. So we did a we did a, a book club where we read and then discussed Packs by Tom Holland, and then we did the facial the Faithful Executioner last time. Hmm. I was wondering, would you mind recommending a book or two for us to do for a possible book club event? Oh, let me think about that. Um, Take your time. No, I'm trying to think about what would be a good one. You know, uh, I, I think maybe something like uh, off the top of my head, a book like um, Inde by uh, Eve Ball. Um, Eve Ball was a, a woman, uh, uh, an Anglo woman who befriended Apache uh, uh, Native Americans um, mm -hmm in the early mid 20th century that's a good one where she was talking to either the children or sometimes actual participants in the apache wars of the 1870s and 1880s and writing their stories down as they told them to her about what they went through and at the time i don't think people and i'm, I'm going from memory here but i don't think people at the time realized how, how much of a historical value that was going to have. And now when you look back on it, you realize had Eve Ball not done this, uh, mm -hmm. what would have been lost? And in that book, she she catalogs a lot of the experiences that these Native Americans went through um, mm -hmm. 
during you know in other words there's nothing like this in 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 a lot of other native american stories because the apaches were the last i'm I, I, right wounded knee happened after the apache wars but they were the la the last great native american wars were were the apache wars in the american southwest and so to have a modern person from the 20th century able to interview people who were still alive and who could recount the amazing struggles and stories and trials and tribulations of what that lifestyle entailed and what they went through. Um, and so, so to grab that book and read these stories and have them come directly from the participants, uh, I awesome. feel like is a really unique uh, window into history that we all know makes up a ton of American history, but that you mm -hmm. have precious few sources like that so maybe that's one to pick up and, and see I, what you guys think of i made a note i think that's a great idea i remember what I, I remember you talked about that in um apache tears, apache tears. yeah yeah and, and it, that's another show i'd redo today and make longer and go into deeper and and yeah the problem is you know i'm a huge, like I'm a huge episodes. <laughs> oh, and, and, and here's the thing the, to me i grew up as, as somebody who was unbelievably interested in native americans and especially sure. the apaches and so to be able to do a show like that and maybe now be able to go into it even more deeply pull from even more subjects uh there's a lot of things i'd like to get into but 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 that's that's a saga you know what and and yeah. and, and and i think uh again what's sad is that we didn't have more direct i mean that, that you had to have an eve ball at all mm -hmm. instead of being able to have uh, uh, members of the Apache tribe in the in the early 20th century writing these stories themselves, um, which right. would have been even better, right? But I mean, it's one of those mm -hmm. stories that when you read about, you realize how interconnected the fates of all these Native Americans are to the country as a whole, and how you know mm -hmm. you talked earlier about these multicultural empires and all these sorts of things, um, and how ours along with a bunch of other ones that have indigenous peoples as, as a core part of their society, um, how interconnected our pasts all are and how a hundred years from now with more intermarriage and, and blending, how much that's mm -hmm. all going to become part of our shared collective um, right. heritage. I mean, it already it's, is, but, but it more is. and more deeply it's, it's all the time. still form the bones of this country, even if it's not in somebody's blood, it's, it's in the country that, we take a lot from Native American cultures. In, in, in well, and people forget they're still there, right? No, Native Americans yep. haven't gone anywhere, right? This idea that this right. is a a past element that's gone now, um, right? It's not at all. And 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 so I mean, I think I I'm one of those people, and I'm I'm going to confess this right up front. I I do believe this idea that diversity is our strength when it comes to all these peoples that have fused into this great melting pot, mm -hmm. and 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 the Native Americans are sort of the original component, right? That everything was built on top of. And right. so I feel, I feel like when we get an, a, a chance to hear from their own lips, uh, what it was like, I, I, I'm, that's sort of, it, it's a rare and unique and sort of a heady history to have a chance. You know, we talked earlier about DNA and isotope evidence being able to fill right. in the gaps where historians don't have written evidence. So when you get a chance to read the remembrances of like an Eve ball, there are other books like that. A few other uh, uh, compilers who went out there and interviewed these people while they were still alive. Mm -hmm. That's sort of, I mean, that is just priceless history. And yeah, I can't imagine. Sources. Yeah. And can you imagine if they didn't exist, what you would lose? Right. Well, so I'm listening to this. Sorry. We're going to do an episode of the podcast on um, a book by um, Steve Ranella uh, from Meat Eater of, about the American long hunters. And, uh, they were in the 1750s, they would, 
go out and hunt deer, uh, deer high, uh, deer to take the hides and sell the market. And they'd be gone for six months to two years. But the very beginning of the book, they talk about how much these people learned how to hunt from Native Americans because they were all from cultures in Europe where hunting was only for rich people. And so they came over here and they learned how to how to live in the wild and, and, and to and to be able to go do what they did from Native Americans. Well, and look at and if you want to fast forward a little bit, look at uh the use of native language during World War II against the Japanese. Oh, that's a great one. Sure, the code, the code talkers, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. I one thing I always think about is historically, what would be different if the diseases hadn't ravaged the Native Americans? Oh, I always wonder if it'd gone the other way. I mean, what sort of historical, uh, what sort of historical twist of fate made made it go basically one way? I mean, what if what if what if it was the Native Americans that spread diseases to Europe and it wiped out half of the European population or more? Right, and I and I've read some some of the reasoning why they think that didn't happen, and it's pretty interesting. The idea that there was a population bottleneck, which made for people a, a group of people whose immune systems were kind of compromised compared to the people who didn't go through that population bottleneck and things like that. I had to encounter that same idea when we were trying to ask the question about why, if the Scandinavians uh, were the first Europeans to set foot in the so-called New World, right, into the Americas, Mm -hmm. why that didn't start the disease chain reaction at that point, right? Right. And it was the same thing. They were talking about bottlenecks, uh, isolated uh, communities, and uh, 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 the distance traveled and the amount of time it took maybe maybe creating the equivalent of uh, a quarantine, if you will, for disease. So interesting, because I would have thought that that's when you would, in other words, if you'd have had first contact and everything that came with it, with uh, mm-hmm. uh, the discovery uh, of the Americas by right. the Vikings, well, then we would have known long ago that the Vikings had had found North America because you would have had all the same things happen back then. The fact right. that it didn't cause that, I think, was partly what hid that from discovery for so long. And the thing to think about with that is, if that had happened, the population might have, even if the rest of the world didn't find out about that the Vikings came over here and that North America was here and South America was here, maybe the population would have had time to recover by the time to the rebound. rest of the Europeans came over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very over. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so then what do they find when they come over here? Instead of, you know, a few million people, it's 30 million people. And then what happens? Well, and look at what the, they're discovering with the Lindar technology now that allows, uh, that allows right. scientists and historians to see through the jungles. And all of a sudden they're finding what what especially, you know, people who are, are let's call them uh, European supremacists, always right. denigrated uh, uh, peoples of, well, they do it for Africa still, and they, they do it for sure. North America and South America, this idea that, well, if these people were sophisticated, they'd have major cities and all these kinds of things. Well, apparently they did. And, right. and people have known about this, I mean, even in North America with the mound builders uh, in, in the Southeast. I mean, there there's been these tantalizing um, clues mm-hmm. that this was always out there. And once again, and this dovetails into the question you asked earlier about, about these, these new uh, abilities that, that all of these different specialties now being added to the work of historians are able to bring in that allow us to all of a sudden open up history where if you had to depend on writings that we have found and translated, you would not know about. And how, you know, I'm not going to live long enough to find out how long this right. 
information changes what we thought about these societies compared mm -hmm. to when I was growing up, what we thought about them. But but how many more cities are hidden? How many more of these sites right. are going to turn up to have all kinds of things that because of the climate or because of the flora and the fauna and how that can hide things, we're going mm -hmm. to find out a lot more about these civilizations that's going to change the entire way we see history in all those various nodes we were talking about earlier that were unconnected, right? right? East Asia, the Americas, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and all these places. It's a great time to be alive if you're interested in history is the short, short takeaway right. on that. And it, it, if, if we ever figured out a way to, to scan the, the coastlines... Without oh, having yeah, to the have ones divers. that are submerged. So I'll tell you guys a story. So um, you were talking earlier about how you found uh, history and the, the, the teacher was just showing you sites mm -hmm. that he, he dug at. Um, I, I was telling my kids when we were talking about school and I was saying, look, when you go to college, um, what you're hoping for is to get in your entire college career, two or three really transformative professors, right? People that change your life. Right. And I had a couple of these people. I always talk about Robert Poise at the University of Colorado, who was my advisor. He was one of those people that, that changed my life when it came to history. But there was another one, the guy who I did my senior thesis with uh, at Colorado. You had to take a senior. It was called Selected Readings, but it was a senior thesis course, basically. And the guy who was my teacher is a guy named Robert Holfelder. And he's an underwater archaeologist who dives off of Caesarea in, in, in uh, the, the Holy Land, right? So that's mm -hmm. what he does. And I remember him telling us, that if you could drain the oceans and just see what was off the coastlines, and he pointed out why it was such a, a giant treasure trove of information. And he said, because if it's on land, people have been picking it you know, since that time period and reusing stone and marble and finding the artifacts right. and, and moving the bones around and plowing the land. He goes, but the stuff that's sitting right off the coast has basically been almost immune from human beings doing that. So the, that's where a lot of the really good stuff still lies. So I'm with you. If you could, if you could just see what's off the coast Man. in these areas there, Alexandria, I mean, when we talk about finding Alexander's tomb, I right. mean, a lot of the conversation centers around whether or not it's underwater. Yep. I was going to say the same thing mm -hmm. about uh, excavation, but through, through scuba dive. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to ruin that. I'm going to butcher that, uh, <laughs> right. that field. Uh, but I mean, basically, I remember hearing about, you know, people, the, the water kept rising and then basically people just started moving in, in, and, in and up. Right. Um, well, because the, under the last ice age, there was way more coast. Yep. So, like, there's the theory that, that uh, the people, uh, uh, the, Pel the Peloponnesians, they, the island hopping they did was not near as far as we feel like as it is now. So they were, a lot of times they, the theory is that they would actually be able to see the furthest island they were going to. You mean the Polynesians, just, right? Yeah, the Polynesians. Sorry, yeah. thank you. No I worries, no worries. Yeah, they would be able to actually see the island because the water levels were so much lower. The, uh, there was more islands. Yeah. So they were really hopping, not near as dangerous as it sounds. Yeah. Still dangerous, still crazy, but not as bad. Right, I so would if, I would not want to do that. I'm just telling you no. that right now. <laughs> no, in a small rickety, you know. Right, I wouldn't but want to do it in an it. ocean liner. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's what's great about the new episode when you talked about um, the Viking episode, and you talked about the waves. Um, what was the term you used for it? The the sudden waves that can come up out of nowhere. Oh, about those are the rogue. the rogue waves, right? Rogue waves. Thank you. That description is chilling, man. I had never heard anybody really talk about it like that, but that is, that was fascinating. So I that's a it. perfect example, though, of of like um, 
where, you know, I, I think I told you guys the story before we started recording that I have a, a friend who does a history podcast and he, he, he suggests that I read less books so that we can get out more shows. And, and that's a perfect example though, of how reading more books gave me something that I really needed for the show on the Vikings, because you don't have information on what it was like to be a Viking in the open sea, but we all understand how crazy that must be. So if you're looking for that, where do you find it? And right. um, I know many people know the movie, The Perfect Storm, but the movie and the book that it was based off of are nothing alike. And the book is this fantastic um, story. They, they mix the story that the movie was about, but with a ton of historical evidence and eyewitness accounts from people who've been to see. And, and I thought to myself, where could we get information um, if we don't have it from the Viking sources about what it was like to be in the open sea and facing some of the conditions. And in The Perfect Storm, the author, uh, um, um, uh, what was his name? Um, uh, younger, but I, I'm always going to say uh, Ernst Younger. It's not Ernst Younger. Um, uh, but, but he uh, is able to catalog these eyewitness accounts of people who weren't doing this in open boats, right? So they're not even even confronting right. them the way the Vikings had to confront them, but talking about what it's like to either be hit with these waves or to encounter these waves or how terrifying it is. You know what I always think about, and I don't know why this is so much more scary to me, but just imagine what nighttime was like, right? Yeah. So you're oh. in a storm and you see these things. That's one thing. But to be in a storm, there's a story <laughs> about, uh, there's a story about Ernest Shackelford, uh, uh, who's, who's, you know, discovering, uh, uh, the South pole. And, and at one point he has to take a small boat cause they get, uh, the sh their ship gets stuck in the ice and they take this small boat out and they get caught in these amazingly high seas, but it's nighttime. And so at one mm -hmm. point Shackleton thinks he sees land in the middle of the night because he sees something rising up that begins to block the moon and it looks like a oh. coastline right like cliffs but it's not a coastline it's the top of a wave and <laughs> and to have something like that hit your little teeny boat in the middle of the night in total darkness i just i can't think of too many things more scary than that unless we bring in the indianapolis Oof. into it and then when they tip your oh. boat over there's a lot of sharks there and then we're you know then we're in terrifying territory yeah i mean Imagine that, though, back without the technology they had to even have any kind of weather predictions or anything like that. At least now, right, the boats would have GPS with weather, so they would they would know the storms were coming. They would batten down the hatches. They or would try to get around lights, it. Lights yeah. or lights on the boat. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> the best you could do is light a torch and see how far that gives you. Like, that's crazy. It's out. It's out in minutes. Humans are amazing. The fact that people were willing to do that is one a testament to how brave and courageous they are and how crappy their life must have been. I would say brave, courageous, and crazy. And But they must have had a crappy life for the, like, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. Like, think about it, right? You wouldn't do that. Nope. I wouldn't do that. I like my life. Right. You well, have to think be... about doing think about doing yep. it without rubber and plastic, right? So instead of rain slickers, you've got to come <laughs> up with like seal skins or mm -hmm. things that you manage to weatherproof yourself. I mean, the Vikings are in an open boat, right, with no below decks. I mean, Ugh. all these kinds of things you just turn around and go, I just you know, when you talked about the silk slippers and, and the wooden mm -hmm. shoes kind of thing, uh, I can't think of anything that's going to toughen you up more quickly than putting you in an open boat for a couple of days in the middle of the North 
North Sea. The North Sea, you know. too. It's not like they're in the freaking Caribbean. Yeah. No, I no, think, no, no. I, it's not nice. No. I, I'm gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to modify that because it's at that point you're not wearing wooden shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah you right. sick. got to that point yet. <laughs> That's before the wooden shoes, even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're so far from the silk slippers, you don't know they were invented. Yeah, no, nope. you're so far from the wooden shoes, you didn't know they were well, invented. Well, Dan, thanks very much for, for coming on today. And um, we'll put a link in the description to the old podcast so you guys can go. And uh, what you can do is you can play along to the, the Judgment at Nineveh trivia. Just pause it. Well, I guess I shouldn't be saying this at the end. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> Whatever. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'm going to add a little addendum to the front anyway. But thanks again, Dan. This was great. Honestly... It feels like I've had conversations with you before, even though I haven't. Oh, we've listened to you forever. So, <laughs> so I, I do appreciate it. Well, guys, listen, it is a it is a kick in the pants that you guys uh, are doing a show about our show. I mean, thank goodness uh, there's anybody interested at all, is what I always say. Uh, I feel very <laughs> fortunate, and and thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you just you're helping us. Um, you're helping us do what we do. I guess I could say so. Thank you. And that's what we want to do. We want to help because. Honestly, we just want to make sure you still have the ability to keep making new episodes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you know, Dan, I, I, anybody I've talked to about history, I always recommend your podcast. It's, yeah, you know, especially people that are interested in history. Like I talked to a gentleman the other day, uh, and he had he's very interested in previous pres- presidents like Washington, Jefferson, mm-hmm. uh, Adams, you know, FDR, Kennedy, uh, and yeah, you know, the, I, I just said, hey, if you like history. This is where you should go. Right. A good well, friend listen, of ours. I don't know if anybody cares. We're doing a speaking tour uh, in late March, early April to gauge people's mm-hmm. interest in whether or not they'd like to come out and hear conversations like this. So if any of your audience is interested and is anywhere near Portland, L.A., New York or Salt Lake City, which are the cities we're going to try yep. this out in and see what people think. Um, uh, I'd love to see you out there in late March, early April. And I'll throw a link in the description to Dan's website where you can find those tour dates as well. Well, that Dan, would be awesome. Thank I, you. Not a problem. And I think you're going to sell those out. I don't think you're going to have a problem filling it out. And like the only reason I'm not going is because none of those are near us. <laughs> like whoa, if you get, whoa, if you ever get to Michigan, we'll be there. I'd love to do Chicago, uh, somewhere oh, in Texas. There. There's a bunch of places that we that we need to, but but we're just mm-hmm. going to see what people. We're going to see if people like the idea. So. Oh, I think you will find that that's even better because what's better than. Something recorded is live, and yep. <laughs> uh, everybody loves live events nowadays. So, well, and we're going to do uh, it do like this conversation. It. It's going to be Q and A and audience questions, awesome. and that way, uh, that none of them are ever going to be the same. And we're going to make sure we talk about what the audience wants to talk about. That's awesome. Do some trivia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do some trivia. So, so I can get the wrong answers. I get the wrong answers live. <laughs> well, but you all, you got four out of five, Dan. Nobody's ever done any better than that. So. Hey man, well, it you're is my show. Good. I better do that well. <laughs> <laughs> Again, though, Scott listened to it twice in the last 24 hours, so that's a bit of an advantage, yeah. you know. Oh, and yeah. you still mop the floor with them. <laughs> so. There you go. Yeah. Well, I All hope right. you guys have a ton of success because that'll be a good thing for me. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Thank you.